You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. There are a lot of different ways we could take this edition of Rico Brunner, we could be really positive, we could be really negative. So hypothetically, if I wanted to be just a raging douche and be negative, I would talk about all the missed scoring opportunities the Mets have had over the last 48 hours. If I wanted to be negative, I would talk about how Carlos Carrasco looks like hot garbage. But if I want to be positive, if I want to make this a happy Rico I would simply say the New York Mets won a series. They won two out of three against the Miami Marlins. They are one game out of first place (laughs) if we're looking at the standings. And sure, they're five and five, but they came home under 500, and they've won the opening series of this six-game homestand by defeating the Miami Marlins in two of three games, even though they happen to lose the final game of this series on Sunday afternoon. I think today's pod is going to feature a lot of both. There's going to be some positives. There's going to be some negatives because the truth is they did win a series. And ultimately, whenever we do these pods, recapping a series, we'll always look ahead to the next series. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. When we start breaking down Mets Padres and that three game series, I would tell you, go win that series. And I'd be thrilled. Go win two out of three. Now, if the Mets win on Monday night, Tuesday night and lose Wednesday afternoon, I would still be happy. I mean, it doesn't mean you go into the final game of a series saying who cares, but ultimately you want to win a series. And the Mets were able to win a series against the baseball team they should beat in the Miami Marlins. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of frustrations over the last couple of days and certainly a couple of things that concern you. Let's go back to Saturday, though. We'll start off with the victory. Obviously, we did a podcast after the home opener So if you missed that, go back into the archives. You can hear us talk all excitedly about how the Mets won the first game of the year at Citi Field. The second game of the year at Citi Field was a late Saturday afternoon against the Marlins. And before I get into the game, one thing that really surprised me was how packed the building was. They announced 41,000-plus for the second game of the year, which is very, very rare, even for Saturdays or Sundays. That first couple of weeks of the year, you're not usually putting up 40,000 people. And I don't think the giveaway was all that impressive. It was a city field replica. The giveaway last year on a Saturday afternoon was the Tom Seaver statue. And I don't have the attendance in front of me, but I'll look it up as we do this podcast. If I had to guess based on memory, because I was in the building that day, I would say they probably announced in the mid-30s. They certainly didn't announce 40,000 people. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I'm not surprised overall that the Mets attendance will be better. I'm surprised individually 
that they did that well that game. I've always said this on the air about attendance figures, whether it's the Mets or the Yankees. You always tend to do better the following year after having success because then people start to say, oh, wow, you're legitimately really, really good. And so you really don't get the perk of a, of a great year until the year after. Look at the attendance figures of the 1997 New York Yankees. You know what I mean? Compared to the 1996 New York Yankees, the year they won the World Series. Anyhow, here are the facts because I looked it up as I vamped. On that Saturday afternoon with a really cool giveaway, they had 37,000 people. So about 4,000 less than what they announced on Saturday afternoon. On Sunday afternoon, and I don't think it was Easter Sunday, they announced just 24,000 people for Mets Diamondbacks. For the Sunday Mets Marlins, they announced 33,000. So 5,000 more for the Saturday afternoon, about 9,000 more for the Sunday afternoon. Marlins, Diamondbacks, give me a break. No one cares about either. I think you're already seeing the Mets are a little bit ahead of the ball on attendance. But the story of Saturday, the thing that probably may be the number one positive coming out of the first 10 games of the season is the man who towed the rubber on Saturday afternoon, and that's Kodai Senga. In his first major league start against the same Marlins team, we all remember what he did. He got out of trouble early on. It looked like he was probably going to get knocked out in the first or second inning, got through the first inning, settled down. He did a, a lighter version of that on Saturday. Gives up back-to-back base hits with one out in the first inning against Garrett Cooper, who I am just, I am so sick of Garrett Cooper. I'll tell you right now, we mentioned Cooper last year as a July 31st trade deadline target, how he would be a good fit for this team. My God, I wish we we traded for him, not just because he's better than Darren Ruff, but because he wouldn't be haunting the Mets every 30 seconds. But Garrett Cooper, one-out single. Luis Arise, who they never get out. One out single. They've got two on, one out against Senga, and very calmly strikes out Solaire on three pitches, including using that nasty ghost fork, which has basically lived up to all the hype, and a soft ground out from Gene Segura. And from there, oh, my God, Senga was tremendous. He strikes out the side in the second, fairly easy third, fairly easy fourth, fairly easy fifth. Dude was dominating. So one of the concerns you have sometimes with guys coming over from Japan or, or really anybody that batters haven't seen is once they see him a couple of times, they get used to him. Well, this is the second time the Miami Marlins were feasting their eyes on Kodai Senga, and they could not figure him out. He was brilliant. He throws hard. He's got a good slider, and obviously the put-away pitch of this forkball, the ghost forkball, has lived up to the hype. I mean, he's getting tons of strikeouts on it. And he looked great, and he showed a lot of poise. And where I really saw the poise was in the sixth inning of this game. The Mets finally had scratched out a 3-0 lead. He gives up the leadoff home run to Jazz Chisholm, gives out a one-out walk to Luisa Rice, throws a wild pitch, walks Gene Segura, and he's in trouble. And I was curious. His pitch count wasn't incredibly high, but I was curious what Buck was going to do in that sixth inning. Was he going to rescue Kodai Senga? Home run. Two walks, wild pitch. He looked shaky. I think we'd all admit it. And to Buck's credit, and I give him a lot of credit for this, he did not go to the bullpen. He did not call on Drew Smith or Brooks Raleigh. He went and stuck with Kodai Senga, and he delivered. He got Avisal Garcia to ground out with two men on base and two outs, up four to one 
And that was it. From that moment on, he's at 90 pitches. Great. Call it a day. So Senga was able to find his way through trouble in the sixth inning. He throws six innings, one run, six strikeouts, one pitch clock violation, but no harm, no foul. Really just a, a tremendous performance by Kodai Senga. And I know it's the Marlins, but I'm getting giddy about this. I think, uh, Pete, of all the things to take out of the first 10 games of the season, far and away the biggest positive has to be Kodai Senga. No question, because there were so many worries about, like, what can he really do here? Like you said, they, we've seen a lot of uh, foreign players come over, and it takes a second. He has been, what is it, now 14 strikeouts in the 12 innings or something like that, or close to it. He's on point. The ghost fork looks great. He's The walks are a little concerning at times, but again, I think that, that that's if that's the worst of it right now, we're pretty freaking good. Again, he gave that home run to Jazz Chisholm, like you said, and still recovered. There was no, it wasn't he like showed he just poise. collapsed. I mean, in, I in various ways, from the first inning of his first start to the last inning of this most recent start, he's not one to fold under pressure. And the Mets have, look, and I'm sure they did this partially on purpose. He's had a nice kind of landing spot for his first few major league starts, taking on this light-hitting Marlins team. And his next start is scheduled to be in Oakland against the A's, another place that, at least on paper, feels like a nice landing spot. His next start after that will be a little trickier. He's going to take on the Dodgers unless they mess around with the rotation a little bit, which I would not rule out completely where he may face the Giants instead of the Dodgers because you never know about the reinsertion of Justin Verlander or even just using an extra guy. Jose Budo actually looked pretty good at AAA the other day. So not that I'm pumping him up, but the Mets have talked about looking to kind of give guys an extra day. And Kodai Seng is coming from Japan where they always got extra days. Guys were not pitching on this regular rest of four days, which he hasn't done yet. I mean, he hasn't done it yet because of that off day the Mets just had. So from that standpoint, he hasn't been asked yet, yet to pitch on regular rest. And I guess he still wouldn't for that. He wouldn't for the Oakland star because the Mets have an off day Thursday. So his first start potentially on that regular rest would be that finale against the Dodgers. That's why I kind of, a part of me thinks they may finagle that a little bit, whether it's Verlander or someone else. I could see Sanga being pushed off that Dodgers start, not because he's ducking the Dodgers necessarily, but because I think with him, maybe as much as Verlander and Scherzer, they're going to want to give him that extra day because the extra day is normal to him. You know, it's not as if you're pitching on regular rest in Japan, or at least what we deem as regular rest. As far as the rest of that game is concerned, the offense early on, <laughs> it was frustrating. I mean, think about the first inning of this game. Nimmo gets hit by a pitch on an 0-2 pitch. Uh, Marte actually got robbed by Jazz Chisholm, who's looking better and better in center field. Lindor struck out. They have a runner on first, two outs. Alonzo draws a walk. Mark Canna gets a very lucky infield hit. And Jeff McNeil draws a bases loaded walk. That That's how the Mets scratched out their first run. They have been the architects of the cheap run. Now, I'm not complaining because every run counts the same. But think about how they gave Kodai Senga the one-run lead. Infield hit, bases loaded walk, and they made that hold up till the fifth inning before Pete Alonso unleashed with a two-run home run. The other story from this game was Eduardo Escobar, and he sort of erased it on Sunday, but at least in the moment on Saturday. Let me uh, give Escobar some credit. First at-bat of the game, 
drives a ball to center field. Jazz Chisholm makes a diving catch. Just mentioned it. Jazz looking a lot better defensively. So first at bat, robbed by Chisholm. Second at bat, just misses a two-run home run. By, by this much, and I'm holding my two fingers together. So first two at-bats, you feel like Escobar's close. Robbed by Chisholm, deep fly ball to the warning track to end the fourth inning. Comes up in the sixth inning. Mets are up three to one. So certainly the game is not over by any stretch. Marlins just threatened an inning earlier, and who knows what this Met bullpen. Comes up with a runner on second and one out and hits a two-run home run. And so that felt like, wow, okay, two at-bats in which he was close, two-run home run, Escobar's about to get hot. Now, you all know what happened on Sunday. I mean, basically, the booze came back. He did have a double in the game, but he struck out in a big spot early, which I thought set the tone for the game. And then in the fifth inning of that game, grounded out with the bases loaded. But more on that on Sunday. More on that when we get to the Sunday game. I really thought in the moment Escobar was about to explode. Comes close, breaks through, two-run home run. Mets now have a comfortable lead that they hold on and win. It felt like this was the breakout for Eduardo Escobar. And another thing, too, is it wasn't like it was a right hand. He, he was facing Trevor Rogers to start, but that was a left-handed home run, which is amazing because last year we really didn't see anything from the left-hand side. It was really the right-hand side where we were like, okay, he still has something to take. So it was really nice to see that home run from the left-hand side. And you're right. I, again, I think it's really all in his head. He still got it there. The booze, everything that happened on Sunday, I think we're just too quick to get on him. I think we just need to give him some space. I think a nice road trip will be nice. We're, we're quick to get on him because of Brett Beatty. I mean, it really is. It's connected. The fact that there's somebody right there underneath him that we're all pining for, I think, adds to the anguish of the Met fan. Like, if the Mets did not have a top third base prospect, he may still get booed, but I don't know if it would be exactly the same. Uh, Escobar, unfortunately, has run into this spot in which I think he's the first guy on the list from Met fans to get on if he fails. And that has to do with the fact that there's a replacement right below him. The other thing from this game that I was annoyed about before I sat down and watched it, and I watched this game on major, major delay. It was a 4 o'clock first pitch. I didn't go to the game on Saturday. I think I started at about 8 o'clock at night. So, And I did a great job, by the way. Had no idea what was going on. Phone was away. When I sat down at 8 o'clock, I had no idea. It's, it really is. I got to tell you, for most people who hate doing it, it is a great feeling. And I, I tend to do it a lot on Saturdays because that's the day. You don't want to spend time with the family. Don't want to let baseball get in the way. We were going to the game on Sunday, which I'll get to. So I kind of have to, I got to give them all my attention, damn it, till everybody's sleeping. And at 8 o'clock, everybody's starting to fall asleep. So I started this game at 8 o'clock. I open up my scorebook. I'm writing it down. And Tomas Nito's catching. And I'm not surprised. We predicted this on the pod last time that Nito was going to start two of these three games. They were going to keep Nito and Senga together. And then we would see Alvarez on Sunday. But it's just a bad sign that we're going to see Nito more than we see Alvarez. We are. It's just the handwriting's on the wall. But the Mets beat the Marlins. Nice, good victory. They win the game 5-2. to two. The negatives, besides what I mentioned about the offense, is probably some aspects of this bullpen. So aspect number one would be Drew Smith. Drew Smith comes into this game with a 5-1 to one lead because Escobar hit the two-run home run in the bottom of the sixth inning, and he comes in with a four-run lead 
and immediately right off the top is issuing a leadoff walk. You cannot do that. And Drew Smith, who was in the circle of trust with Buck first half of last year, did not pitch well in the second half, had the injury. We don't know what to think about him starting this season. This was a very shaky performance. Walks the number seven hitter up four runs, gives up a base hit to John Birdie, who's a pain in the ass. And after facing the minimum required of three batters, Buck gets him out the game and goes to Brooke Raleigh, Brooks Raleigh, who doesn't pitch all that well either. Actually got very lucky. Jazz Chisholm, it's a line drive. Luckily, it's right at Tommy Pham. He walks Garrett Cooper, gives up an RBI single to Luis Arise. So even though the Mets get a 5-1 to one lead, here comes the bullpen, 5-2. Now they're set up with bases loaded, and Buck pulls him. And I'm telling you, I'm sitting there as he makes the move to get Raleigh out, which he needed to. I was thinking of David Robertson. And the reason I'm thinking of David Robertson is not that I'm panicking, you know, game two of this series, game eight of the season, game eight of the season or game, game nine of the season, I should say. It's the old philosophy of bases loaded, two outs. I'm up by two. I'm up by three, I think, at that point, five, two. I'm going to go to my best reliever. I'm not going to screw around. I, I, I may save David Robertson for a situation that never comes. Now, it's early in the season, so obviously Buck wants to challenge guys. He wants to see what he's got out of this bullpen. I'm just telling you, I'm raising my hand and telling you, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking 5-2, bases loaded, two outs in the seventh. I would just go to Robertson right here, get me out of this inning, maybe pitch the eighth two or face a few batters in the eighth, and I'll go figure someone else out to get the last five outs of this game. You know, maybe it's Adam Adovino, maybe it's John Curtis, maybe it's somebody else. Obviously, Buck did not do that. He goes to John Curtis. So John Curtis comes into this game, and we don't know about John Curtis yet. We've seen some good from him. We've seen some bad from him. He's certainly not in the circle of trust, but he goes to him, bases loaded, two outs, 5-2, Jorge Soler out of the plate. And a great job by John. Those two pitches gets him to pop up the second base, gets through the inning, and then throws a one, two, three, eight. So for the negative that was Drew Smith, and it was bad, and for the negative that again was Brooks Raleigh, he wasn't very good. Though there is one major positive about Raleigh I'll get to later. It involves Gary Cohen being old and bitter. But John, that's a tease right there. But John Curtis comes in, gets four outs, doesn't put a guy on base, and pass the test. So great job by him. Robertson comes in for the ninth inning in a 5-2 game. Bing, bing, bing. Gets a save. One, two, three inning. Robertson has looked fantastic. I know it's a limited amount of innings so far, but he's looked great. So John Curtis and David Robertson, the good from the Met bullpen on Saturday. The bad, Brooks Raley, Drew Smith, two guys I think the Mets are going to want to rely on in a big spot as this season goes. But Drew Smith, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's got to he's got to earn to get back into that circle of trust, Pete. Well, this is the thing that sucks about bullpens. We talk about this every year. It's so inconsistent. We we were like, which guy is not going to be who he was last year? Drew Smith at the second half was not that guy last year. So it it's kind of predictable, I guess. Maybe he'll have a great second half, and then we'll, we'll bring it back, bring it all full circle. Um, but again, there's rumors too already that I see that Mets are back in the interest level of Zach Britton. You know, so they're clearly not comfortable in the bullpen area. Yeah, I think Zach Britton, 
I don't know. I, I keep reading his velocity is in the low 90s, and that's not the end-all, be-all. But can Zach Britton be anywhere close to what he was three years ago with the Yankees and before that with Baltimore? I have no idea. I don't know. But but right now with this Met bullpen, you're talking about replacing Denny Reyes. You know? You're talking about replacing Dennis Santana, who's come back down to earth his last couple of appearances. So when you, when you kind of view those other options versus Zach Britton, it's easy to rationalize. Sure, why the hell not? Why not bring him in? But a good victory for the Mets on Saturday ensures they win the series, pops them above 500. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And then we get to Sunday's game. I took the entire family. I was so prepared because of this cold weather. It's been chilly the last couple of days. City feels very hit or miss in terms of the wind. I got a two-year-old. I got a six-year-old. I got my wife. I got my father-in-law. I can't F around. I can't have them freezing their asses off because if they end up in the Piazza Club in the third inning, I'm a bad guy. That's really what it comes down to because then they're in the club while I'm out of here freezing my ass off watching an April baseball game. I feel guilty as hell. So I went to town on hand warmers. I went into CVS and just bulked up on hand warmers. They are magic, man. They are fantastic. When I used to bike every single day to work and I'd bike in the 20s, 30 degree weather hand warmers were always the thing because they get hot i also bought electric hand warmers that you can charge they look like a, a mouse for a computer and just hold them and they're very very hot plus two met blankets and we bundled up with long johns so it was like we were going on a ski trip going to this met game on sunday afternoon and from that standpoint forget the baseball for a second boy we hit a grand slam everybody was warm Everybody was toasty. Everybody had a good time. Nobody was complaining. Nobody was freezing their asses off. It was a major, major win outside the baseball. Because the ba- the baseball on Sunday absolutely sucked. It, just, it did. And before I get to Carrasco, because that's the easy one, Carlos is the easy mark. We'll get to him. How about the missed opportunities this offense had? Oh, my God. It was It was freaking constant. Braxton Garrett is making the start for the Marlins, a lefty out of the bullpen who the Mets saw down in Miami. He makes the spot start. Yeah, they're down 3-0. Again, we'll get to Carrasco in a second. Starling Marte scorches a double into the left field corner. They got a runner on second and one out with Lindor and Alonzo coming up. And I've said this a million times. You give up a crooked number in the first inning. You don't have to get it all back the next half inning, but scratch away. So in this case, 3-0 is not 7-0, 
Go score a run. You score a run, you're back in the game. You come out and score a run in the bottom of the first inning, and it's three to one. It's like, okay, deep breath, you're in this game. And what happens? Well, first of all, Starling Marte steals third and bangs his neck against the third baseman, Gene Segura. I blame Segura, even though I, I really shouldn't. But you know what? Screw it. I blame Segura, dirty player. So we get a five-minute delay checking out Starling's neck. He stays in the game. We all knew what was going to happen. I mean, we, we, all, we all knew he wasn't going to stay in the game for long. But either way, he steals third. We'll get to his injury in a second. Lindor strikes out. Alonzo strikes out. Forget Carrasco giving up the three-run home run. I knew the game was over in the bottom of the first inning, not the top of the first inning, because giving up three runs in the first doesn't mean you lost the game. But when you have a runner on second and then a runner on third with less than two outs and your two best hitters are up and neither guy can make effing contact, oh, the, the handwriting's on the freaking wall. So it's 3 nothing. They can't score. And here comes Luis Guillorme to play second base. Well, there it is. Marte's done. Now you just a, a sickening feeling. Marte, who's been very, very good, who you just know is you're waiting for an injury with him. And that's not a knock on him. It's just the reality. You're waiting for the injury on him. And now we got to sweat out this neck issue, which I don't know about you, Pete. He's going on the injured list. And that's just my gut. I think they're going to be cautious with him. They're giving him concussion checks. It's a neck injury. We're not going to see him for a week and a half. I mean, if we're lucky, it will, it'll be a week and a half. You know what I mean? I mean, when it comes down to Mets injuries, there's just never any good, you know, it, it, there's never good a good outcome. I guess the only positive is Brett Bade returned to Syracuse. Hey, <laughs> they're not gonna get him that. in the lineup. <laughs> I, well, I know, I know. The Francisco Alvarez thing is, is was very bothersome to me. I'm. Well, it was it was good to see him in the lineup, that's for sure. And he was actually a part of the other second frustration of this game, which was the bottom of the second inning when Canna singles, McNeil doubles. Here we go. Second and third. Nobody out. Here we go. And Eduardo Escobar, fresh off the heels of his breakout game, strikes out in such a feckless at-bat. I mean, just looked awful not making contact. And Francisco Alvarez was the one freaking guy who actually put bat on ball behind in the count one and two in his first at bat in the major leagues and dunked the base hit to right to make it a three to one game. But again, you're set up first and third one out. Timmy LaCastro strikes out looking Tommy Pham grounds out. So even though they got a run and I give Alvarez major props for that, especially being behind in the count. They leave two more guys on base. They leave another guy in scoring position, and they leave another guy on base who was on third with less than two outs. So even though Alvarez scored one of the guys from third with less than two outs, you set up with McNeil on third and less than two outs, and no one could get him in. Very frustrating. What do they do in the third inning? Get the leadoff man on. What do they do in the fourth inning? They get a one-out double by Eduardo Escobar, a little roller that stayed above, uh, stayed wide of third. Second and third, one out. And again, they can't hit the ball. This time we blame Alvarez. He struck out with second and third, one out. 
And then LeCastro got robbed on that sinking line drive to left field. Just very, very frustrating. And in the fifth inning, they're set up again, even though they're down in this game six to two by this point. And Escobar comes up, bases loaded. And what does he do? Grounds out. And what was frustrating about the Escobar at bat is he was facing a reliever in Tanner Scott who had not thrown a strike. So Tanner Scott comes into this game as Garrett's an out short of qualifying for a win. Walks McNeil on four pitches, throws ball one to Escobar, and he's hacking. So the one pitch Tanner Scott throws that's close to the strike zone, Escobar jumps on, and now look, he hits a grand slam. It's a different story, but he hits a ground ball to third base. Very, And that's the game. So we could get on Carrasco all day, and I'm about to. Don't worry. But the offense missed so many freaking opportunities in the first five innings of this game. They left eight guys on base, and, well, six of them were in scoring position. Just insane. So many just. And the ones that kill me, here are the ones that kill me. Last thing about this. The Mets are a contact team, right? They don't hit a ton of home runs, but they put the bat on the ball for the most part even though they struck out uh, 12 times in this game, the Sunday game. When you've got a runner on third and less than two outs, all you're asking for is good contact. Like when Lindor came up, the infield was back. They were back. When Escobar came up second and third in the second inning, the infield's back. When LeCastro came up, they're giving you a run. And the bread and butter of this team is supposed to be, yeah, we're not going to hit a ton of home runs. But don't worry, we're going to put the bat on the ball. And that killed him on Sunday. Now, is it a different game if they score a run in the first and score an extra run in the second? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it is. I have no idea. Maybe Buck Walter manages it differently. I'm not sure. But obviously, the problem was Carrasco. His velocity was sitting in the low 90s. Buck says after the game, the problem is the splitter. It's just not working. Whatever it is, the results suck. Whatever reason it is, it's just not good enough. And the killer to me is when you give up a home run on an 0-2 pitch, that's just as frustrating as it gets. And it was a slider that just hung there. And Brian De La Cruz, of all people, absolutely ripped it. Ripped it. Now, to Carrasco's credit, he pitches a 1-2-3 second. He pitches a 1-2-3 third. He gets through the fourth on that really good-looking double play turned by Lindor to Guillerme. But the fifth inning, when you're just trying to get through it to keep them in the game, he gives up another bomb. It's Garrett Cooper again. So two bombs. He walks three guys. He gets very few swing and misses. It was just a mediocre game by Carlos Carrasco. And, of course, it's going to bring up the question, which is, are you concerned? His velocity's down. His stuff is not great. We can come up with a million different excuses for this. We heard the pitch clock after the first start. Now we're hearing, well, he's just not throwing a splitter well after the second start. Uh, I'm sure somebody will blame Francisco Alvarez for this. It's all his fault. They were running all over him, except the problem was they weren't running all over him. They were running all over Cookie. When Jazz Chisholm stole two bases in the first inning, there wasn't really much Francisco Alvarez could do. It really wasn't. The one one the one stolen base you can kind of kill him on is the errant throw in the eighth inning when Segura stole second and Alvarez threw the ball in center field. Obviously, it's an error. And it broke the Mets straight. The Mets had not committed an error until Alvarez threw that ball into center. 
I'm not overly concerned about that. And I don't think that's the Mets' concern about Alvarez defensively. I don't think it's the run game. I think it's more calling a game, pitch framing, things like that. But Carrasco's got to be better. And two starts in, it's been bad cookie. As Pete said before we started recording, it's his line, cookie looks cooked. Uh, Yeah, that sucks. At some point in time, though, we're literally going to have to see what if Cookie Carrasco cannot write the ship? I mean, how we talk about how much wiggle room does Eduardo Escobar have? Well, this is now uh, the second game in a row, but like he didn't have a great season last year. But how long could you give Cookie Carrasco innings? Like, honestly, how many starts can you give him before you think about, all right, may, maybe we have to do something else? And I mean, there's no one in the minors that really are exciting, but. Dylan Bundy's out there for crying out loud. I would I would disagree about this. I thought he had a good year last year. He went out and made just about every start. He had a lot of up and down starts. Like his ERA ended up right around four, but he had some dominant starts and then he had bad ones, which would bring his ERA up. If he gave them 150 innings with a four ERA, I would sign for that every day of the week. And for a guy who's slated to be your fifth starter, forget how much he's making, forget about his resume. If he goes out and made 29 starts and threw 150 innings and pitched to a four ERA, I think that is really good for a fifth starter. I got to tell you, I mean, most fifth starters are not going to give you that. So yeah, but, but, I thought but his year on. last year was good. That's my only disagreement. The, 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 the problem with that is, though, we say that he's just he's the quote-unquote fifth starter, but we're, t- we're talking about a, a pitching rotation right now, which is Scherzer, Sanga, Carrasco, Peterson, and McGill, I mean, technically, they're kind of all fifth starters, those last three. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree that the rotation looks different, especially without Verlander and, and definitely Quintana. I mean, if Verlander's there, you almost look at him as your fourth starter, so you probably go up one slot. I'm just saying that those were the expectations we had on him. Like, I'm not expecting Carlos Carrasco to be what he was in 2017. I'm just not. I, I just don't think he's that guy. He's he's 36 years old. You know, he's he's one of those guys where last year was exactly what I would want from him. He's going to be up and down, but he's going to take the ball every five or six days, and he's going to keep you in the game. In these two starts, he hasn't. Now, how much time would I give him? You're going to give him a lot of time, and here's the reason why you're going to give him a lot of time. They don't have a lot of options. You know, obviously, if Justin Verlander walked through that door tomorrow and David Peterson and Tyler McGill are pitching their ass off, it's a different story. But Jose Budo looking good in Syracuse is not going to change the game all of a sudden. You know, Joey Lucchese pitching five quality innings isn't going to change the game. So I think with Carrasco, it's go out there every five, six days. I just need you to pitch better. I need you to keep them in the game. And you didn't do that today. You know, in the second through the fourth inning, he did. He gave up the three runs in the first, and he kept them in the game. And if the offense had shown any competence, it would be a 3-3 game, or maybe they would have retaken the lead. But the fifth inning was a freaking nightmare. I mean, especially when, when you give up a hit to the number nine hitter. I, don't, I know we live in the, the DH world now, so the nine hitter is not a pitcher. But John Birdie ain't much better than a pitcher. I'm sorry. Even though he kills the Mets. That was the beginning of the end. And I thought Buck, Buck may have stuck with him too long. I don't think it would have made a difference. Like once he gives up the home run to Cooper, you probably should get him out of the game. But maybe maybe Buck's thinking at that point, you know what? Screwed anyway. 
<laughs> but you know what? We're down six to one. This offense isn't going to come through. Let me just see if I could get him through the fifth inning. And he couldn't because he walked De La Cruz and then he went to the Gosick. And hats off to the Gosick in all, in all seriousness. This, what you saw in this game on Sunday, I have to mention this once in a while, as much as it pains me, is one of the benefits of the designated hitter. What I mean by that is if you have the pitcher hitting, the Gosick is not getting a 10 ounce because what you would do is he would get through the fifth inning, maybe get through the sixth inning, and then he would be due to hit. And in the sixth or seventh inning of a game in which you're losing six to two, you're going to pinch hit for the pitcher. You're not going to tap out in a four-run game. You can't. And so you'll send up a pinch hitter. It won't do anything. You're still probably going to lose. And now you got to use two or three more relievers. But because you don't have to worry about that in this world, and I'm being honest, I think this is a benefit that you have. Buck was able to say to Nagosik, hey, can you get me to the ninth inning, pal? And he did. Three and a third innings, one run. I mean, he did, he did his job. But I, I've noticed this, obviously, over the last couple of years as a longtime National League fan. If the pitcher hit, and you could double switch all day, eventually that spot's going to find you. And it's going to find you in an inning or two. You're not going to just let him hit to save your bullpen in a four-run game. You may do that in an eight-run game, but in a six-to-two game, as much as you and I may think the game is over, you can't do that. And we'd be annoyed if he did that, by the way, because we'd be saying, come on, you're giving up on the game. So because of that, you're able to get three and a third from Nagosik, and it saved your bullpen. It really did. The Mets have three more games before they have an off day. You think they wanted to go out and use John Curtis and David Robertson and Drew Smith and Adam Ottavine? No. And Brooks Rott? No. They want to save those guys. And Nagosik did a pretty good job. Three and a third innings, one run. Dennis Santana came in. He wasn't great, but gave him an inning. So the Mets were able, after another subpar performance by Carrasco, at least save their bullpen. Now, the hope is with Max Scherzer pitching Monday, you didn't need to save your bullpen. The hope is Max Scherzer can go out and pitch like a guy who's making $44.5 million. Is he going to? I, I can't tell you that. Uh, so the Mets lose. They lose the finale of this series. I'm annoyed because my family's there. I'm annoyed because I got to walk out of the building and explain to both of my sons. Yeah, no, they, they just won the series. I know you weren't there Friday and Saturday, but trust me. They won a couple of games. <laughs> it's funny because you're sitting there saying like, oh, you know, how are we going to rely on Carrasco? He's 36 years old. So what we, we're just going to hope that he pitches, you know, close to what he did last year. And don't worry, we'll wait for Verlander, the 40-year-old, to, to come back and Scherzer, the 39-year-old, tomorrow to, to, to really rely on. Okay, but well, hold on. In fairness to that, in fairness <laughs> to that, I get what you're saying, and that's a fine way to throw it out there. Verlander won the Cy Young last year. Scherzer had the best ERA of his career last year. So, yeah, they're old. And, yeah, it could all backfire on us. And so far it has. But their recent resumes are pretty freaking good. Yeah, I, listen, I, I, I do it facetiously. But because I, I, I do think that they are really still – they have something left of the tank. But it's just a, it is kind of a joke when we look at it this way. It's like, oh, we've got to rely on Carrasco and to get us where where we need to go. And it's just it, it listen, it it's a crapshoot. Listen, this is a whole thing. It's right now, it's a New York motto. It's the Jets way, it's the Mets way. It's let's go for this 
the old talent and hopefully we could survive. Well, look, it's, it's why, you know, 10 games into the season, the biggest concern you'd have is the rotation. I think in fairness, I, I think that's the biggest concern. I think this offense, as frustrating as it can be at times, has shown you that it will probably put up similar numbers to what it did last year which was a top five offense, which was good enough, not in the biggest moments of the year, but overall over 162, they scored enough runs. The biggest concern right now is this rotation. One quick baseball point in general that I have, my dad and I talked about it on Friday on opening day. And then on Sunday, it kind of jumped out at me again. And that is the rule on what it takes to qualify for a win. If you're a starting pitcher. You have to pitch five innings to qualify for a win. We now live in a world in which if you go five innings, that's considered a quality start. On Sunday, Braxton Garrett got two outs into the fifth inning, left the game with runners on second and third, but leading the game by a score of five to two. And I got no issue with it. Skip Schumacher took him out. He went to Tanner Scott. Scott made it a little, little dangerous, but got through it. And Braxton Garrett can't get a win. So the official scorer has to decide who he wants to give the win to. And he gave it to Tanner Scott. Fine. But nowadays, with starting pitchers not going deep into games and the fact that nobody cares about the win, it's been killed as a stat, shouldn't we end the world of you can't get the win if you don't pitch five innings? I think that world's got to end. Why does, why does Tanner Scott deserve the win more than Braxton Garrett? Because he came out of the bullpen? Like, what the hell's the difference? One guy pitched four and two-thirds. The other guy pitched an inning and a third. And while I'm on it, one last thing about this win thing. The other thing I would do, this is a little bit more extreme, is I'd have every win be decided by the official score. Like, I would not just go by, were you in the game when your team took the lead? Which is the rule, other than if you didn't pitch the qualified five innings. I'd make wins an official scores decision. I would. Guy goes eight scoreless innings, but his team doesn't score many runs, but that team ends up winning in the 10th. Why not get the start of the win? Guy pitched eight scoreless innings. So I'm sorry. I know that's not a Met-related thing. That's a baseball soapbox-related thing. Would you go, though, like, let's say your point is, go the majority. Like, if a guy goes four innings and then the rest of the bullpen goes in any each and they win the game, just give it to the guy with the majority innings or the guy that that performed the best. Yeah, it, there's no hard rule on it. I think every game is different. So I think you have to look at the game. I think sometimes you can watch a baseball game and say, hey, that guy deserved the win. So I wouldn't make it a hard and fast rule of who got the most outs necessarily. And, and by the way, if you did that, it's like another fun thing for all of us to debate. You know what I mean? Like, oh, why'd you give this guy the win? That guy deserved the win. The win is a stat now that has died a death. Very few people still look at it. You could call yourself old school all day. It's not looked at the same way. So if you want to kind of help it, if you want to kind of resuscitate the win, letting someone decide who gets the win is probably the fairer way to get a win. So... It's just a baseball idea I have.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, let me rip Gary Cohen for a second. All day on Friday, I think it was Friday. Yeah, all day on Friday after the opening day win, I couldn't get a song out of my head. And I kept thinking, where did I hear this song? This song is amazing. And it turned out to be the walk-in music for Brooks Raley. All right, the song was so good. This is how I learn about music. I learn about music by watching my favorite baseball team play. And based on walk-in songs and walk-up songs, I'm like, that song is good. So I quickly Google Brooks Rally walk-in song, and I found it. It's called Loud and Heavy by Cody Jinx. I'll play a few seconds for it through my phone. You ready? Pretty good. Oh, that's fantastic. Be the same. I'm very bass, right? So I put that song on my phone, and I'm happy. I played it over and over this weekend. The song's badass. So I'm watching the game on Saturday, and Gary Cohen, I forget who he's complimenting, but he's complimenting a Met pitcher for coming out to Jimi Hendrix, which I got no problem with. I love Jimi. No issue with Jimi Hendrix. Mike Piazza used to use Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child, as his walk-up song. That's fine. I got no problem with Gary putting the guy over for having Jimmy. He then proceeds to say, better than whatever Brooks Raley has. I don't know what that song was, but it was depressing. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, what are you talking about? Because the song's loud and heavy, and he's talking about a rainstorm? It's dramatic, Gary. It's great. This is not a knock on Hendrix. Hendrix is fine, too. But you got an issue with my man Brooks Rally? Yeah. Listen to this. Pretty dramatic, right? Yeah. Minds are racing. Hard to sleep, man. It's shaking. Oh, it's tremendous. Do you have some repeat? Do you have this on repeat in your car? I do, yeah. So when you're driving home, rather than listen to the radio, rather than listen to, to whatever else is on, you're listening to Brooks Rally's walking song. So here's what I do, Pete. <laughs> Sometimes I get, I'll get a song in my head, and I can't get it out of my head. Drives me nuts. And the only way to get it out of my head is to listen to it over and over and over and over again. And usually after about two or three days, it's gone. Like, I'll still like the song, but I'll get it out of my head. So I'm in that pattern right now where all I do is play this over. <laughs> but it just I bet I bet back in the day you probably had like a, a, a mixtape of all the walk-up music for the mess, right? <laughs> I, can't, I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> all I know is I love this song. Like it great song, okay? And Gary Cohen just out of nowhere bashes it. As he's complimenting Jimi Hendrix, he could have picked any other player on the team to say, I don't like this guy's song. I don't like that guy's song. He picked the one freaking guy whose song I'm now obsessed with. 
So check it out. It's uh, Cody Jinx, J-I-N-K-S, loud and heavy. I know it's been out for a few years. I apologize. But badass country song. Now Brooks Rowley just starts to getting starts to got gotta get somebody out. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. Do you uh do you think Gary was on board with Timmy Trumpet for uh for uh Edwin Diaz or was he against that whole thing? He probably hated it at first and then realized that I can't argue with it anymore. Yeah, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll set this one out. Oh, one other thing, very important discussion. Opening series of the year. Some of us have been able to get to the ballpark for the first time this year. They did make an alteration. On the last Rico, we talked about the Bob Murphy microphone patch, which is great up in left center field to honor the Murph. They have decided to make an alteration with the championship banners. So you got the 86 World Championship banner, great. Got the 69 World Championship banner, fantastic. You got the pennant winning banners from 1973 from 2000, from 2015, no problem. They then created an individual banner called Division Championship Banner and Wild Card Banner. So on the Division Championship Banner has all the years they won the division but didn't win the pennant, right? So they're not going to they're not going to put 88 twice. At least I don't think they did. Uh 88 they would. 86 twice, I mean. So I think they put 88 you know what? I'm wrong about that. They put every division they won. I apologize. So they put 69, 73, 86, 88, 2006, 2015. Okay? Every division championship that they've won. And yes, that's all the divisions they've won. Then they have the wild card battle where they put all the wild cards that they've won. 1999, 2000, 2016, 2022, 2016 and 2022, in my humble opinion, are very, very different than 1999 and 2000. In 2000, they went to the freaking World Series. In 1999, they went to the National League Championship Series. In 2016, they played a game, a game, a singular game. And by the way, they didn't score a run. In 2022, we all know what we saw. They lost two out of three. The fact it's on one banner makes it piss me off less, if that makes any sense. If each wild card was given its own banner, I would look at 22 and I would look at 16 and I'd have a big issue with it. So tell me if I'm wrong, Pete. The fact that he stuck it on one banner, I think I'm okay with it. I'm not. Uh, I- I'm kind of upset that they didn't put a banner up of like all their 100-plus win seasons. <laughs> That's that's what I really need right now. Like they need to highlight all the accomplishments from the New York Mets. Listen, I get it. They want to try to build the history, so it's it's a good idea. It's still bad memories right now. So until you win a World Series or until you get past the wild card round, that's all going to be a, just a crappy memory. So for now, it's just not good to me. It's a crappy memory from 16 and 22, but the fact they stuck it together with the other wild cards, I don't know. I, it's it's less offensive to me. I think when 2016 had its own banner and it did for a while, wild card participant or whatever the hell they called it, that's just pathetic. Like I think that's pathetic. I think when you just lump them all together to basically honor all the times you made the playoffs, I think it's a, it's it's a way to get through it and have it be less pathetic. At least that's how I viewed it when I looked at it. I noticed that on opening day, 
I didn't bring it up till now, but that's the change they made with the banner out there in right field. Uh, before we end this, I have uh, a good and a bad thing to, to look at with the Mets. Are, are you ready for this? Sure. So the, the good stuff. Um, his name is Pete Alonzo. And I going into today, I, I don't know what his what would the math would be now, but going into today, he was on pace to hit ninety home runs this season. Now clearly, <laughs> now clear, now clearly, he's not going to do that. Like I don't think he's going to break an all time record. But Pete Alonso is about is about to embark another special season. I mean, he's basically this season, the next season away from breaking the Mets all time home run total. Like to think about what as long as he doing. stays healthy, he's on his way. He's driving in a run a game. He's got five home runs through 10 games. So yeah, you play 162 games. That's a pace for 81 home runs. No, he won't do it. But yes, Pete Alonso is hitting home runs and driving in runs. And that's what he's paid to do. All right. And now the negative. Okay. Let's just look around the league at the players that the Mets Decided not to go for it because they were working on Darren Ruff. There are so many options with this one. Are you going to go with my guy, Adam Duvall? The guy I was screaming about? Uh, there, there's, th- there's three guys. Adam Duvall, J.D. Martinez, and freaking Nelson Cruz today went like three for four with six RBIs today and another home run, his second home run of the year. He's played like four games, but he's got two home runs on the season already. Two more than the Mets have in the DH spot. Yeah. And and the DH spot, again, I mentioned this before, we have to look at it very carefully when we look at the production from it because on Saturday, Pete Alonso is the designated hitter. On Sunday, Mark Canna is the designated hitter when, truthfully, those guys are going to play either way. So it's really – it's Tommy Pham. Against left-handed pitching, it's Tommy Pham who's getting those at-bats even if he's not DHing. Daniel Vogel back from the left side. The alvarez Nito thing will be interesting to keep an eye on. I made my prediction on Friday that he would not play two of these three games. He'd play one of them right so far. I think same thing for the San Diego series. I think he plays one of those games. Probably Tuesday because they're facing uh, a lefty. Ryan Weathers is pitching on Tuesday. And so even though I don't know if that would make that big of a difference because Nito's better against left-handed pitching too. But you just know between Tuesday and Wednesday, that's going to be the split between Nito and Alvarez because it's a day game after a night game. So I think Alvarez no way catches Monday with Scherzer on the mound. I'd be surprised. And then he catches one of those two games. So I think we're looking at this pace where Alvarez is going to be treated like a backup catcher because he is the backup catcher. It, It pains me. I think it's ridiculous. We went through a lot of it on the Friday podcast, if you want to check back on it. But that's where we're headed right now, that Alvarez is not going to play the bulk of the time behind the plate. It's ridiculous. So what's the point? Why did we call him up? Well, okay, so I did receive an email about this. It kind of circles back to something I said last week, but I want to kind of argue with my own point, or at least argue with the emailer. And that person was Ed Flood, who said it's probably because of the 40-man roster stuff with Michael Perez, which I brought up, that Michael Perez is not on the 40-man roster and that that could be the reason. My disagreement with Ed, and I think I said it at the time, it's not that complicated, though, to add him to the 40-man. Like, if I'm not mistaken, Quintana is still on the 15-day IL. If you shift him to 60, that opens up a spot. So I don't think that should be the complication. And considering Narvaez is out for two months, you wouldn't be making like a 
40-man roster justification for something that's going to last two months. So my my guess to that is, or to your point of what's why is he here then, is that he's going to play and he's going to learn. He's just not going to play a bulk of the time. And Buck tried to make the argument over the weekend that Nito gives him the best chance to win. There's a lot of aspects of catching that are very difficult to measure. I'd be the first one to admit it. But I still think he needs to learn. Even if Nito defensively is that far and away better, and I'm sure he is, especially behind the plate pitch framing. We all know the metrics that Nito kind of succeeds at with that. There's no way to get better without learning. And it doesn't mean I think these games are meaningless. These games are very important. The Mets have to earn a postseason spot. But what are be- what better way to learn than now than catching games in April and May? But I-, I hope I'm wrong. But based on the actions of the first three games and based on the words of Buck Showalter, Alvarez will catch one game a series. That- that- that's, I think, the pace we're looking at. Uh, you brought something up earlier, though, that's worth discussing. If Marte needs an IL stint, where do they go? Jeff McNeil can play the outfield. So calling up an infielder makes perfect sense. It means McNeil would basically replace Marte in the outfield, but who would replace McNeil in the infield? And it's an excuse to call Beatty up. You are right. Will they do it? I've always said the injury is the easy out. An injury is an easy out for Billy Epler to say, we've altered our plan. Same thing with Alvarez. Their plan was for Alvarez to be in the minor leagues. There's an injury. Now he's in the major leagues. You call up Beatty, you play Escobar at second, McNeil and right. Done. You're not benching Escobar. And by the way, if you do that, you can platoon Escobar and Guillaume at second base. So it's not like it's just Eduardo Escobar. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. I don't know what this team would do. I hope they don't have to do anything, though, because obviously – but Starling Marte missing time sucks. He's one of the important bats in this lineup. He's the number two hitter. It would damage this offense to miss Marte for a couple of weeks. Yeah, no question. And again, like I, 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 I just trying to make excuses to get these young kids up here. And I'm not sure what the good solution is. Cause like you said, like you want Marte here. I'm not really, it's like a surplus of talent and I really think that Epler and and Cohen and Buck, I don't know if it's a decoy because they're really just trying to save these guys to make a big trade. They're just playing possum right now because so far, a lot of things they've been saying, like they, they go the other way with, uh, uh, except for this Alvarez thing. The Alvarez thing, Buck basically said he's not going to be playing, and, and it's been the, that's been the case. Noah Gattel asked a good question at the RicoB at gmail.com. Seth Lugo has now pitched two quality games in a row. At what point do we say the Mets blew it, not giving Lugo a chance to start? What what I find fascinating about the Lugo question, I always did, is that separate administrations all thought the same thing. Think about that. Seth Lugo was a part of this Met team dating back to 2016. He was in the rotation. They moved him to the bullpen. They gave him another shot in the rotation in 2018. Then exclusively, he becomes a bullpen arm over the last couple of years. But you are talking about the Alderson era, the Brody Van Wagenen era, the whatever you want to call year one of Steve Cohen era, the Zach Scott, uh, whatever. Who's the other one now? I, I keep forgetting the two. Jared, oh, Jared Porter. Porter. Yeah. The Porter Scott era to the Billy Epler era. We've had all these different eras of Seth Lugo or management around Seth Lugo. And no one really thought he was a starter. 
So it's not just the Mets didn't think Seth was a starter. It's all these different people that ran the Mets didn't think Seth was a starter. I thought when Lugo started a little bit in 17 and 18, he was okay. He had his moments. I don't think he was bad. So I don't think he was ever or ever proved he couldn't be a successful starting pitcher. I think it was... the rest of the way in San Diego as a starter. Let's see if this is real or not. Now, before we announce, hey, Lugo's a success. I don't know if he is yet. I don't know if he is yet. As far as what's coming up next, the Mets aren't going to face Seth Lugo, but they are facing the San Diego Padres. And get ready for nightmares, because on Monday night, it's a rematch. <laughs> a bad rematch. A rematch of game one of the wild card series. Max Scherzer, Against you, Darvish. The Mets never hit you, Darvish. Max Scherzer's coming off an awful start. He's coming off an average start. And his start before that is when he was throwing batting practice against the San Diego Padres. Padres come in playing good baseball. They won a series against the Atlanta Braves. And now we get to see Max Scherzer against you, Darvish, right out of the gate. Uh, game one, Nito will start. Game two, they face a lefty, another lefty. They face so many freaking lefties. And I think they're three and three against lefties overall. They faced Trevor Rogers twice, Jesus Lazardo, Wade Miley in Milwaukee, and they just faced Braxton Garrett. So they're facing a lot of lefties is the point. And they're going to face another one. Ryan Weathers, who, yes, is the son of the immortal David Weathers. So they face Ryan Weathers in game two of this series. We'll see if David Peterson can bounce back. Peterson and Weathers. And then Tyler McGill will uh, start the finale of this series. Like I said at the top of this podcast, win a series. Go win two out of three against San Diego. Go out west above 500. Have a winning homestand. And then despite all the other concerns around us, you have to be happy. Go win the series. You lose the series, we're going to be angry. They get swept. We're going to be panicking. That that's the truth. You win the series. I think we feel okay. You lose two out of three. I think we're very disappointed and we're like, oh crap. Here we go out on the West Coast trip, a game under five hundred. And if you get swept Milwaukee style, it will be another press the panic button kind of uh, off day going into the three games in Oakland against the A's. A ten game road trip, three in Oakland three in LA, four in San Francisco, but it starts with three games, a rematch against the San Diego Padres. You can email the pod, the Rico B at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening. Me and Craig, two o'clock on the fan, Pete producing for Tiki and Tierney, 10 a.m. on the fan. Thank you for listening and downloading to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.